And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Gene Monterostelli. Gene is the host of the Tapping Q&A podcast, as well as a practitioner who specializes in people to stop self-sabotaging themselves when it comes to physical and fitness, weight, relationships, and work. Gene, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome. Thank you very much. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to the conversation. All right, Gene, how did you get involved in tapping in the first place? Yeah. So in, in my early 30s, um, social anxiety was slowly making my world smaller and smaller and smaller. And fears are really fascinating things because like, I'm afraid something is going to go wrong. I experienced something. And because of my confirmation bias, I remember all of the things that went wrong. So I get this little bitty micro dose of proof that, oh yeah, that really is a dangerous thing because I notice or I perceive the things that were dangerous about that thing. And so over time, fears grow and grow and grow. And so for me, social anxiety was something that was a part of my life. And by the time I'd gotten into my early 30s, it was crippling. I, I could stand on stage in front of 8,000 people. It was as easy as breathing because stage was control. I know I have the skills. I know how to control an audience. That was a piece of cake. And at the time I would live in Baltimore and I'd fly back and the shuttle bus at the Baltimore airport that took you to your car basically just looped around the parking garage and you just said, hey, stop. This is where my car is. And it got to the point where I couldn't do that. I would literally ride the shuttle bus until someone else said stop and I would get off with them and then walk however far it was to my car, even if it was multiple levels away. I couldn't answer my own phone. I couldn't get help in a store. And when I was engaged in conversation, I was fine. But for some reason, that entry point was the thing that was really scary. Um, and when I was the summer when I was 33, um, I had two friends in my life who were trying to do really cool things that were really big things. And because they were big, cool things, they needed help. And I could help them, which required me to make phone calls, which I was scared to death of doing. I would not make the phone calls. And then I started lying to them about the help I was providing. Oh yeah, they need to get back to me. I left a message when I hadn't done anything at all. And so I'd gotten to the point where I was undermining other people's lives, that I was okay, not happy with, but I was okay with my world getting a little smaller and a little smaller, but kind of the rock bottom moment for me was going, okay, I am now making really bad choices that are hurting the people around me. And I either, I guess there's three things. One, I can keep hurting people, which isn't good. Two, I can stop having friends, which isn't good. Or three, I can do something about this. And I happened to stumble across this tapping thing. It sounded kind of fascinating. Um, apparently, it was really good for fears and anxieties and worries. And so I thought I would give it a try. So I did the scariest thing I could think of at that particular point in my life, which was online dating. And where I lived in Baltimore, there were two neighborhoods that were about a 30-minute walk away from me that had lots of fun places to hang out and eat and drink. And I love everything. I can always find something on a menu that's going to work for me. And so I would connect with someone and I would say, great, um, Mount Vernon, pick a place and we'll go there. And so then what I would do, because tapping is something that you can apply to yourself, is as I walked to the date and as I was tuning into that fear, because with every step I was getting closer to that thing that felt dangerous for me, I literally was just walking down the street, tapping along, using the tool, tapping along, using the tool. And in six weeks, my social anxiety was done. Like it was something that just gotten taken care of. Now, 
On the other side of all of this, as a, a well-formed trained practitioner, I don't think I would have one of my clients go through the process the way I did without any sort of support, just doing it on your own, even though it's a tool that's really useful. I was going after something big. Fortunately, there were no big boogeymen hiding under the covers in the corners of my subconscious mind. It was something that worked out really, really well, but that was kind of my introduction to it. And so then I just started sharing it. Like all of us are, when we find something that's really transformative in our lives, we become those ridiculous zealots that run people over because it's the greatest thing ever. And you have to be doing this thing. And so I just started kind of sharing it with other people. And as that happened, my curiosity kept deepening. So I just kept learning more so I could share it more so I could do more in my life and just kind of stumbled my way into it that particular way. Hmm, that's great. So let's get into the nuts and bolts of it. What is tapping and how does it work? So the second question is, uh, we'll talk about that. Maybe we can give a good explanation of that. What we know. So the brief history of it is, is that in the early 80s, um, they started doing research around acupuncture to see whether or not acupuncture actually had benefits, which you're well aware of. And um, you could look at it two ways. One is you could say, we are trying to expand the canon of tools that we can use, or we're doing this research to prove this stuff wrong. Regardless of the motivation, the thing that they discovered that not only was acupuncture really useful for pain management, it was also working for depression and phobias. And there was a psychologist um, who lived in San Diego, California, by the name of Roger Callahan, who had read these studies and was fascinated by this. And he had a client who had water phobia that was so severe she could not shower. And Roger, because he was in San Diego, his office was the pool house behind their house, which meant she had to walk by a swimming pool to go to a session. So imagine encountering the thing that you are most scared of as you are stepping into a therapeutic environment. Well, in, in Roger's study, he found that, and I think this is correct, that the point that is directly under the eye, one of the points that you'd use in acupuncture is associated with the stomach meridian, and she was feeling sick to her stomach. So he just had her start thumping on that particular point instead of sticking a needle into it, just providing another level of stimulation to it. And so 20 minutes later, she was in the backyard splashing water onto her face. And he was, oh, and so he started developing and working and created thought field therapy, which turned into EFT, which turned into the modern sense of tapping. And so basically what happened, what we know, things that we know, when we stimulate these points, cortisol levels drop in the body, that there have been multiple studies that have demonstrated that we can measure it in the blood, we can measure it in the saliva. And so when we have, we operate out of the programs that are sitting in our subconscious mind. And the reason that we have all these programs in our subconscious mind is to make the world so much more efficient. Because every time I think it takes a lot of energy to think. And when I get into a rental car, I don't want to spend time going, what's the gas and where does key go and all of that sort of stuff. So we just pick up these patterns, how I put on my pants, how I make my coffee, because it just takes significantly less energy. The problem is, is when one of those stories doesn't have accurate information inside of it, you know, like the spider is so scary that if I see a picture of a spider, I freak out. And so what we can do is we can do a process called memory consolidation. Memory consolidation is just the ability to go into the subconscious mind and rewrite those stories. Um, those memories, those stories in the subconscious mind, it's kind of like a Word document that is an autosave all of the time. 
And so it's constantly adding new data to those memories, those stories, those patterns. Like I said, it's the reason why fear grows over time. I have this experience and I write more data into that file saying, oh yeah, this is really dangerous. Oh yeah, this is really dangerous. And instead of three footnotes about how the world is dangerous, I now have 374, which I take much more seriously. So when we are tapping, what it gives us the ability to do is it gives us the ability to turn down those emotions. Whatever emotion that we are experiencing, physiologically it turns down, which now gives us access to that story, that subroutine, that programming, that pattern of the world that we can now go in and rewrite in a way where we're not trying to get through this shield or level of fear, anxiety, overwhelm, whatever the emotion is in the way. So tapping works two ways. One, it works really great as like a triage technique. In the moment, I can do some emotional first aid and I can feel really good about something. So like on a really busy day when I am overwhelmed between every single task that I do, I do a little tapping to bring that overwhelm down so I can start the next task, which is a really, really different endeavor than me going in and finding experiences from my past, which are informing the way I act right now, where we're actually taking these old stories from the past. And that could be a week ago, it could be our childhood and rewriting them. So we have new, well-informed, proportionate, accurate patterns of the world. So that when I encounter the thing, the pattern, the way that I perceive thing is something that is useful. So are you accessing in your memory or thinking about things that emotionally upset you, but then you're tapping your body at the same time to relax your body in order Mm -hmm. to train your body not to get physically emotional about it or physically feel terrible about it when those circumstances arise? Almost. What we're doing is we are, by tapping in the moment, we're relaxing Then the second thing that we're doing is we're changing the framework that we have about the world. So those are actually two separate things. So it's not like the tapping is training me to be calm, but I'm tapping and becoming calm and then thinking logical thoughts. Oh, that lion that is in the Central Park Zoo isn't actually dangerous to me right now. In reality, I need to be afraid of lions only when I'm close to one and there's not a big giant cage between me and it. And so oftentimes if you see online, you see videos or podcasts or audios of folks doing it, you will hear the person leading along doing lots of reframing. And so basically what we're doing as we're tapping is we have this story that is inaccurate, that we're now bringing information to it that is accurate. The story is, I'm afraid of tigers. Tigers are always dangerous. I tap, the fear comes down, and then I speak into that. Yes, tigers are dangerous, when you are close to one of them and it is not in a cage. Mm. And so then what happens is we're making that fear well-informed. So it's showing up in a proportionate way. You know, it's okay for me to be annoyed by mice in my apartment living here in New York. They happen occasionally. Like that's something I need to pay attention to because they are unsanitary. They could be chewing on the wires. I need to do something about it. But if I see one and I jump on the table and scream like a five-year-old, like that's a really misinformed response. And so what we're doing is we're turning, tuning that down. Now I was working with a client recently. She'd reached out to me, snakes. Like she had this, um, just this crippling and she had grandchild who just loved reptiles. And she knew that this was going to be a part of her life, lizards and snakes and all of that sort of stuff. And so we were get to the point where on a walk, she encountered a dead snake and it's like, oh, there's a dead snake on the ground and just moved on. 
where before if she she would literally go snake and you could just see her like clenching in fear. So she's not going to like dive into a cobra pit and start playing with the cobras, but she was able to surprisingly bump into a dead snake in her life. And I was like, oh, there's a dead snake on the ground and just moved on. And so it was moving it to a place where she was perceiving the world more accurately. You know, the the emotions themselves are never the problem. You know, it's good that we have this rich emotional experience. That's part of the amazing part about being human, but we want it to be a proportionate, well-informed emotional response. And so that's what it kind of feels like for me, whatever I'm doing this work is I'm like trying to calibrate what is going on. Like, I work with small business owners, like for some people, not you or me, but for some people, it feels really dangerous to show up on a YouTube channel because I'm going to be seen and people are going to see all of this stuff. And we can move it to a place of, I can show up in a professional capacity and talk about my work on camera and that's okay. And it doesn't mean I have to talk about my worst childhood trauma in front of an audience of people I don't know, but moving them from a place of being seen as dangerous to... I can talk about my work in a way that may or may not be accepted, but that is not dangerous, which is different than me putting all of my stuff out in front street. So we're recalibrating where the fear goes. So people are making the thoughtful choices that they want to be making in their day. Hmm, Makes sense. In the first part, when you are relaxing the emotion or relaxing Mm -hmm. your body, you're obviously tapping. But in the second part, when you're reframing, are you still tapping? Absolutely. Yep. Just tap the entire time. It, it, it's like the old yellow pages commercials. Let your fingers do the walking. Um, because we're in a circumstance that we know that stimulating these points down regulates emotion, simply tapping is a beneficial thing. So like I will just like sometimes just watching TV, will just find myself just doing this just because it's just relaxing my body. And that's a healthy thing for me. I'm leaving fight, fright, freeze, fog, flop, and I'm just returning to that growth state. And so we're doing the thing simultaneously. And in the beginning, like people watching a video, they've seen the demo a couple of times as we're kind of doing this. It looks really awkward because it's weird. And then very, very quickly, it becomes second nature. Like you stop thinking about it in the beginning. It's like, well, I have to say things and I have to tap my body and I have to know where to tap. And that feels really overwhelming until it's not. You know, I could drive a car, talk on my phone, tune the radio all at the exact same time where when I was 15, starting the car was petrifying and doing anything at all was overwhelming. Now I'm comfortable doing those things. And so it's similar with this. So yes, we're just like when in doubt, like to the point that even when my clients are just like telling me what they want to talk about, oftentimes I'll say, great. So just while you're sharing what you want to talk about today, just tap on your collarbone while we're doing that, because I know that it's just going to like even if I just relax you three and a half percent as you're reporting to me what's going on in your life, you're going to be a slightly clearer communicator and you're going to have a slightly greater understanding of what is going on. And so that's a win. So even if we're not going to tap on the issue that you're talking about, simply while you're reporting to me what is going on, if you're doing a little tapping, you're going to feel a little bit better in the process. And that's great. And that's something that we can strive for anytime, anywhere we want. If you're doing tapping alone, do you speak out loud when you're going through this or do you think it? Yeah. So the thing that is important is the attention that we are drawing to what is going on. And when I'm speaking something out loud, it doesn't mean I'm paying attention to it. I can be going this pain in my knee, this pain in my knee, this pain in my knee, if I'm tapping on a pain in my knee, and I can be thinking about the laundry. I cannot say anything at all out loud and be completely focused on what is in front of me. And so the words themselves are not magic, but they're a way of crystallizing something. And when we take an idea and we have to put words to it, 
it forces us to understand it in more detail. It goes from something that is conceptual to something that is tangible. And so oftentimes when I am talking through something out loud, I make discoveries about my own experience because I am giving it detail as I say things out loud. And like even outside of tapping circles, I have found myself going, and then I felt this, huh? Yeah, that's actually what I felt. And I didn't realize what I had felt in the moment until I was verbally processing it with a friend and describing what is going on. And so the words are much more an effective tool for us to clearly reframe and understand the problem than it is something magic about tapping. And so oftentimes when I'm sitting here by myself in my office, 60% of the time I'm speaking out loud and 40% of the time I'm not. And so it's, it's more about what my attention is. Now, if I'm in a circumstance where I am so sad about something and tears are pouring down my face and I can barely breathe, I don't need to be saying any words to tune into the problem that is at hand. Like it is, it is so vivified in this particular moment, me tapping or me tapping and going, I'm really sad right now. Saying that out loud isn't going to do anything. But something that is a distance, when I just start describe it, it, it's almost like, like right now, if I had anybody imagine their second grade classroom, and then imagine where you saw it and sat in the second grade classroom, and what your teacher was, and where the windows are, and who are some of your classmates. And so with each one of those details in your mind's eye, if you can remember second grade, all of a sudden, the picture became more and more vivid and more and more alive. Now, you didn't learn a bunch of things about your second grade classroom, but because I'm giving words to the experience about the detail, the clarity of the experience is enhanced for you. And so when we're tapping, that's the purpose the words serve. Like All the time through my website, I get questions like, what are the right phrases to tap on this issue? And that's I understand the desire of that question, but it's not the useful question. You know, it's, it's, it's a tool that helps us to do something and the words aren't magic. And regularly when I'm tapping with clients, I will say one word, they will translate it and describe it another way. Like I'm running a class presently on upper limit issues. And, and one of the ways that we discover like where are our upper limits is to, dis- to imagine someone else who has the success that we want. And in the process, I call them the hero because they're doing something heroic that we want to do. And one of my students yesterday was like, I actually translated that to star because star makes much more sense in how I understand that person. And so hero star, like the word is not magic, but understanding the person that we are using to tune into the experience, that's the thing that is important. And so I will say one thing, and a client might report back something else that makes more sense for them because it's about the focus. It's not about the word. Is it more beneficial to do the tapping alone or to use a practitioner like you? It depends. Um, like, like I use a practitioner and I tap alone. Like, like my rule in my life is, so for like taking action, If I put something on my to-do list that I'm resisting to do and it gets moved three times down my to-do list, I have to make an appointment with my practitioner because obviously the internal tools I am using are not enough. And so the question always is, how is it working for you? I... The three benefits that I have as a practitioner is number one, I have lots and lots of experience. I've done thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of tapping. Number two, I have lots of expertise. Like I know how to cut to something much quicker. But number three is I don't live inside of my client's head. 
So I immediately have some distance and some perspective and sometimes can be in a circumstance where I like a client will say, everybody work hates me. And I go, really? Everyone. Hmm. And I go, okay, actually it's just, and when we're in the middle of it, it's hard for us to see the generalization that we were making because we emotionally respond to the words that we use. If I describe it as everybody at work hates me, I'm walking in with my dukes up because it's going to be a battle all day. But if someone from the outside goes, really, everyone? Okay, it's just Joe and Jenny. And all of a sudden, my emotional response changes. And so it, sometimes we are too close to an issue or like, like I work with clients who have just have dealt with traumatic, traumatic, physical traumas in the past. And like, that is not something that is comfortable and safe to go wandering into by yourself. Like you really want to be in a circumstance where you have a skilled hand. So yes, the answer is by yourself is awesome. Working with a practitioner is awesome. About every two weeks, I'm on a call with my practitioner and every single day I'm tapping on my own. So if you're doing tapping yourself, from what I'm mm-hmm. understanding, you don't really need scripts. You got to first kind of be honest with yourself and out loud speak what your problem is, what your fear is, and then you want to try to reframe it. That's what I'm saying. Yep. Reframe so, yeah. it as if you're giving advice to a friend. And that's actually how I teach people to do it in the beginning. So you imagine that there are two people sitting in a coffee shop talking about what is going on. The first person is stating what is they're experiencing and how they feel about it. This is how I perceive it. This is how I feel. This is how I feel about it. Then we switch seats. And if a friend just told you all of those things, what would you say in response to a friend? And so you have actually described perfectly the way I teach people in the beginning of how to come up with phrases to describe what's going on. And so we just kind of, and then we just bounce back and forth because when a friend gives you advice, you're like, yeah, but what about this particular thing? And so, so then it's just basically this internal dialogue that I imagine myself bouncing back and forth. So I'll spend 30 to 60 seconds kind of giving one side of the conversation. And then I imagine, okay, if someone said that to me, and what's really interesting is, you know, I talked about this idea of sometimes we're too close to things, simply doing a simple activity where I'm disassociating myself a little bit, where I'm pretending a friend is the one who is reporting this to me instead of me saying it instantaneously, I have a bunch of insight. I don't know why that is, but it's just the reality of it. Like I have clients all the time will say stuff. I'm like, great. If someone said that to you, what would you tell them? And like, well, actually I tell them blah, 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 blah. Awesome. Right. And they're like, yeah, that is the answer. I knew that all along, but for whatever reason, by taking a step out of it and looking at it from the outside is really useful. So that is a perfect way to start tapping and finding the words to describe what is going on. Now the points are on each side of the body. Do you have to yep. tap both sides or do you just do one side or does it really matter yeah. where you're tapping? So yeah. So the, the most important question for me with any tool that I use in my life, tapping or otherwise, is how's it working for you? So there are some people who are really passionate about the fact that well, there are points on both sides, so I should be tapping on both points at the exact same time. There's some people who think that there is value in crossing the midline and using my right hand and tapping on my left side of the body. And some people want to do both hands at the same time, and they're literally tapping and crossing their body and all of that sort of stuff. I just tap. And I find that it is useful. And for me, I'm always looking for the simplest way to try and solve a problem. And if the simplest way to solve the problem does work, then I'm going to add a slightly more complex solution. So most people in the beginning, I just say, 
tap with one hand on that side of the body. Most people start with their dominant hand. You know, today, basically from one to five, I'm working with clients, which means I'm going to be a lot, doing a lot of tapping. And so it's a little fatiguing. So as I'm tapping with my clients, like even in a round of tapping, I might switch from right to left. And so it, it might matter. I have not noticed my own experience that it matters enough for it to be a big deal. Um, like when I make my bed, I make it fine. It's not perfect. I'm not measuring the edges, but it gets the job done because I get to climb into a nice comfy bed at the end of the day where some people are like meticulous about those things. I'm okay with it being made sufficiently. Same thing with tapping. Tapping with one hand for me is sufficient, except when it's not, then I try something else. If someone is in the moment of having an anxiety attack or a panic mm -hmm. attack, can you stop it then with the tapping or should you wait Absolutely. until it's passed and then you can kind of strike? I, yeah. And so again, like I mentioned earlier, there's kind of two paths when we're doing this stuff. There's emotional first aid, which is making me have a more reasonable emotional response in the moment. And there is transformation to what is going on a subconscious level. And so in the middle of the day, when I'm overwhelmed, I'm not trying to transform my limiting beliefs. When I'm in something that is super anxiety producing, I'm not trying to do that because the first step is just to feel a little bit better. And so when I'm in that particular circumstance, I'm just trying to, in very technical jargon, downregulate the emotion. Like I'm just trying to take the emotion and bring it down to a level that feels much more comfortable. So in that moment, it's just feeling better. And sometimes I can't feel good, but if I can feel better. So for example, I can, I have trouble with my internet from time to time. It is one of the things that is the most frustrating, frustration-inducing things in my life because my life is so dependent on the internet for the client work that I do and all, because I work with everybody remotely at this point in my life. If I can go from angry to frustrated, I am going to deal with customer service better. I'm going to deal with the moment better. Being frustrated is not a lot of fun, but it's better than being angry. And so for me, the goal of tapping is what is the next better emotion that I can feel in this moment? And then after I get that, what is the next better emotion? Because I just want to get to a place where it's useful. Like tapping's awesome for cravings. And as I think about the... Um, pumpkin-shaped Reese's peanut butter cups that I bought at the grocery store yesterday, which are my favorite because the chocolate peanut butter to ratio is perfect. Mm -hmm. As I think about that, my mouth starts to salivate right now and the cravings at like a seven on a scale of zero to 10. But that's okay because I am not going to get up in the middle of our conversation and go eat chocolate. Now, when I'm on lunch break and I'm trying to eat a healthy lunch today and I don't want to do that, having that craving as a seven, as I'm just listening to a silly sports podcast while I'm making lunch, well, seven's going to be really hard for me to make a good decision. So I will have to tap on that if I want to make a good choice, but I don't have to make the craving go away. I just have to reduce it to the point where I can make a good choice in the moment. So when I'm really emotional in the moment, the goal again is to have a proportionate emotional response. And so when things aren't working, it's proportionate to be frustrated. If I'm cursing out total strangers over a customer support line, that's probably not the way I want to be doing it, but it's okay for me to go, okay, this is really frustrating and this is how it's getting in my way. Can we solve this problem quickly? And so it's getting it to a place where it's, useful in the moment. And sometimes I can't feel great. You know, I have a, a very, very dear friend of mine whose mother passed away on Sunday. She's not going to feel great today, but 
she can get to a point where she can navigate her day and make good, thoughtful choices. They're making plans. And, and so that's part of the grieving process. And so she's not going to leave the grief with tapping, but she can put it to a place where she can be in the moment to manage what's in front of her. You've been doing tapping for quite a long time. Do you feel like that you have modified the technique to make it better over the years? I, I think better is the wrong word. Um, I am constantly iterating the way that I use the tool set. So it is more useful for me. Um, I like, I like to describe myself when it comes to transformation as, as a practicalist, I'm not super concerned about the worst thing that has ever happened to you or the biggest trauma. I'm concerned about the thing that is in the way of you living the life that you want to live. And sometimes that's a big honking thing. And sometimes it's a really small thing. It's just about the thing that is in front of you. So my approach is different than some because mine is very much about what can I do so my next action is better. The second thing is just as a teacher is I'm a computer scientist by training. I think of things algorithmically as recipes. And so when I am doing tapping, I have a tendency to do it in a less intuitive, more structured point of view, just because I'm trained to write some code, send it to the compiler, see what the errors are, see how it's working and tweaking it. So I'm constantly iterating with a client so we can move forward. I find that easier to do by doing it in a really systematic way. And so like I've created 50 or 60 different frameworks that I use and that I teach to navigate. So like it's more effective for me. I mean, one of the things that I love, I teach a class every single month where I teach a different framework for something. And I say, this is, this is my thinking. Here's the tool I demonstrated. I send people off into groups of three so they can be the practitioner, be the client, be the observer. And then they come back and they share their experience. And I teach the same class Tuesday and Sunday so I can eat different parts of the world. And oftentimes the handout for Sunday is different because on Tuesday, someone goes, well, what about this? And I'm like, if you come back on Sunday, the seven-step process is now an eight-step process because we've just found step 6.5 on my little list here. And so for me, it's a process of iteration. And when I share it with my clients, my students, it's like, here's the way I think about it. Go find a way that's useful for you. So like, I think I have a really unique point of view on my approach to the tool set, but it's useful for me. And so that's a better word than better, just because what is useful for me isn't useful for everybody. And how's it working for you? Again, we go back to that question. So whenever I'm presenting stuff for my students and my clients, like we try something and I get a lot of pushback. Yeah, that's not resonating. That's not working. I'm like, awesome. Now, like, as a practitioner, my job is to be the color of water. You know, I need to reflect back your experience and help you to navigate that in a way that is useful. And so sometimes we do things in a way that wouldn't be my natural inclination or the way I like to do it, but it's the way that's most effective for the person who's in front of me. And so like, that's how I kind of think about my spot in the world around all this stuff. I am certainly better than I was 15 years ago. That I can say for certain. I don't know if I'm better than other or I do it in a better way, but I am more skilled in the way I use the tool set. In the beginning, you mentioned it took you about six weeks to get over your social mm -hmm. anxiety. And then you also mentioned Dr. Callahan, who helped a woman with um, fear of water in one treatment. Yeah. Do you find that there is a certain time frame for certain conditions on how long it takes a person to get better or get over it? Yeah, so it has to do with in it has to do with the context in which the internal program was written. 
because we can be, we can have something traumatic happen to us in a state of safety and we can have something traumatic happen to us in a state of unsafety. So for example, if as a child, I was capping with my family and my brother threw a rubber snake into my sleeping bag and I'm now afraid of snakes. I was in a state of safety and I countered something that was unsafe. Something like that, single session can knock out something like that very, very readily. If I'm in a circumstance where I have a parent who is bipolar, is alcoholic, has some sort of mental illness, and I can act the exact same way on Monday and Tuesday, and on Monday the parent is loving and on Tuesday the parent blows up, because the world is unpredictable, I am in a circumstance where I'm in a constant state of unsafety. Therefore, those experiences imprint on my memory and my understanding in the world in a very different way. And so it's kind of like when I have trauma that it happens in a state of safety, it's almost like I'm mending a rip in a garment. If I have traumatic happening in a state of unsafety, I am now trying to get red out of plaid. Like it's been knit into the fiber of who I am in a different way. And so if it is something like, it's quicker to mend a fabric than it is to get a color out of plaid. And so that is going to determine how short or how long the transformation takes because of that, of what is going on. The other thing that we don't know when we're thinking about something is, is this because of one thing or is this because of a constellation of things? And oftentimes I will work with a client and we will do some amazingly profound, deep work around something that is clearly attached to what is going on in their life. And then behavior doesn't change over the course of the next week. So then we revisit it. And it's like, oh yeah, and there is this. But the second thing didn't present itself in the first session because they didn't have the capacity to do it. Like there's a physical limitation to the amount of healing we can do. Like just because running a mile is good, running a hundred miles isn't a hundred times better. Sometimes in a session, we can walk away from it feeling amazing because of the amount of work that we've done. And part of that is the body's governor going, this is the capacity of transformation I have today. And when we come back to it, there's a second layer and a third layer and a fourth layer for those things. And so when we start, we don't know, like we are notoriously bad eyewitnesses to our own experience. And so when a client comes to me and said, and a client was like, I'm afraid of speaking in public because when I was in grade school, I brought in my hamster, guinea pig, some little fuzzy thing. It got away. Everybody laughed at me. That's the reason why I'm afraid to speak in public. That is a completely coherent explanation. Well, the reason why she was having trouble is because her boss was going to be in the room for a presentation and that had never happened before. So her story as to why she was the way that she was made sense, but it wasn't actually the issue at hand. And so we're like, oh yeah, this memory, easy to knock out, piece of cake. So we cleared the memory and we imagined her speaking at work and she still freaked out. It's like, oh, this is a different issue than we realized. We need to figure out what else is going on here. So that also impacts it, that we have false starts because of the way we report about ourselves or because me as a practitioner has limited information. We might go down a path that isn't super useful to begin with. And that takes time. And sometimes the only thing we discover after 30 minutes is, okay, that wasn't it. We need to go down another path either now or at another time. And that will impact how quickly something's relieved. Do you find that sometimes you go down these long rabbit holes with clients that have, you know, multiple traumas that are Mm -hmm. associated with each other and you've got to peel off many, many layers to get to the root of it? Well, and so yes and no, because transformation is not an all or nothing proposition. 
Um, I learned this from Dan Cleary. Um, Dan is a hypnotist who does pain management. And um, when I first studied with Dan, this is about a little more than a decade ago, the story that he always told was that people would spend between five and seven years in traditional medicine before landing on the doorstep of a hypnotist for chronic pain. Um, it's a little more acceptable now, but that's where it was at that point. And they would sit down and they would describe what is going on. And Dan would go, great. So after a 90 minute hypnosis session, how would you like to be completely pain-free? And they're like, that would be awesome. And he's like, forget it. It's not going to happen. He goes, but tell me how your life would be different if 50% of the pain went away. Tell me how your life would be different if 25% of the pain went away. Tell me how your life would be different if 10% of the pain went away. Now, if it's a back issue, maybe if my pain reduces by 10%, I can sit down for a full movie or I can go out to dinner with my family. So I still have pain. I still have significant pain, but the quality of my life is transformed. And so he's like, great, we can do that in 90 minutes. And so when we're dealing with something that might have a constellation of issues attached to it or is impacting our lives in lots of ways, what happens is I might get more back. You know, I don't go from being afraid to speak in public to standing on stage in front of 10,000 people, but I might go from not being able to speak up in a meeting to being able to give some contribution. Then we do a little more work and I go from being able to contribute to being able to lead a small group, to doing a little more work, to giving a presentation to a hundred people in the room, to 500 people in the room. And most people never have to get over a fear of public speaking for more than 500 people because they're never in that circumstance. So there might still be issues there, but they're not impacting what's going on. So as we're like stepping into it, again, for me as a practicalist, I'm like, awesome. How much work do we need to do to make your life better and richer in this particular moment? Because sometimes like, for example, let's pretend I'm petrified of hippopotamuses or hippopotami or whatever we call them as a plural. I don't actually have to do a lot of tapping on that because in Brooklyn, New York, I typically don't run into them wandering around the streets. And so I could have this horrific memory of it storming through my village and knocking over my house. And as long as it's not causing me nightmares right now, it doesn't matter if that's still lurking in the background of my system. And so it's more of an issue of what is it we need to do to be useful? And sometimes we take useful steps and there's not a tangible difference in what is going on. Sometimes with each useful step, the world is a little easier, it's a little safer, and I'm able to do things I couldn't do before. And I think it's really important when we're thinking about transformation that we never make it a digital experience, that it's not I'm transformed or I'm not, I'm pain-free or I'm not, I'm in fear or I'm not, because there's so many externalities that cause us to have emotions, like it's impossible for us to escape those particular things, but instead it's what can I do to make the experience better? What are the ways that people self-sabotage themselves? So there's really four reasons why we sabotage ourselves. Um, we don't know what we want. We don't know how to do it. It's painful to be successful. It's painful to take action and it's painful to be successful. And for each of those four things, there can be a practical component or there can be an emotional component to it. The practical component is like, I don't know what I want. Some people are really bad at coming up with an outcome that is better than what they're in right now. Like they can tell you all the things that are wrong in their life. You go, what would you like instead? And like, I don't know. So they don't have the practical skill of creating a plan to move forward. And we're not going to wait. Our subconscious mind is not going to allow us to waste energy on a plan that is not well-formed because 
13,000 years ago when I wasted energy, I was in peril. So our subconscious mind is trying to save all of the energy it can. So I'm only going to go in directions that I'm definite. So that could be a practical reason why I am going to prevent myself from taking action. An emotional reason is I had a dream before it didn't work out and man, it was devastating. So I'm never going to have a big dream ever again. So I prevent myself from taking action because I don't want to get emotionally invested into something. So don't know how to do it. Sometimes I simply don't know how to do something. So I don't do it because I don't know how to do it. Or I don't like looking dumb. I don't like being a learner. I don't like raising my hand and admitting I don't know how to do something. I, I'm notoriously good at playing to my strengths and my competencies. There are things I'm great at. I'd rather spend my day in those things, but those aren't always useful. Then as we get into the second half, it's painful to take action. Well, there's two types of painful to take action. Tarring a roof in August at 3.15 in the afternoon in Miami, that's painful just because it is physically taxing. Or it's painful because people see me trying. You know, I have a dream that the people in my family think I am foolish. And if they see me pursuing this, they're going to think less of me. And so I'm trying to keep myself emotionally safe from the judgment of my tribe because 10,000 years ago, if I was pushed outside of the tribe, I died. Like literally, not hyperbolically. I'm using the, the definition of literal, not the millennial definition of literal. Like we would die. And so we carry that with us that we don't want to go against the grain of our, our family, our tribe, our cultural community because there is death on the other side of it. It's painful to be successful. If I am successful, I have to work really hard to stay successful. If I am successful, the people in my life are going to be really, really greedy and want to latch onto it, you know, like professional athletes that come from really struggling places talk about this idea of survival guilt of how I now have all of this stuff and some of them have to disconnect from their community or some of them lose all of their money because they're trying to lift everybody else up with them. Or I had a client who, when she was a child, every time she did something that became the new standard. So if she got an 80 on a math test, 80 was now the only thing that was acceptable. And then if she got an 83, 80 was no longer acceptable. You demonstrated you could get an 83. So 83 is now it. And so I could have this fear of if I'm successful at this thing, now everybody's going to expect me to live up to that all of the time. And so the first thing that I always do when I'm trying to help someone when they're not taking action is to have a conversation about practically, do you have the know-how, the resources, the time and space to execute what you need to do? Because it doesn't matter how much internal transformation I do. If I don't know how to program a computer, I'm not going to tap myself into creating the next great app. Then once we know all of those things are in place, then we start going, okay, great. Why is it dangerous for me to know what I want, know how to do it, take action and be successful? Because we, my, Brad, my buddy Brad Yates talks about this. We are brilliant in our ability to self-sabotage ourselves. Like the creative ways that we come up with from printing ourselves, from taking action is absolutely magical because the subconscious mind just wants us to be safe. And if it thinks anything that we are doing is dangerous, it's going to pull the emergency brake and go, no, 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 we're not going in that particular direction. And so typically when we are self-sabotaging ourselves, it's because there's some sort of internal conflict. Like I like to think about it like the inside of a corporation. I got the R&D arm that's trying to create new, amazing things. And I got the legal team that's trying to make sure that we don't get sued. 
And so both of them have the highest value of the corporation involved, but the lens that they are seeing the world is conflicting. I have this very, very scared subconscious mind that only wants me to live through today so I can procreate and the species can go on. And I have this amazing human creative part of me that wants to experience richness and create new things and live an authentic life. And both of them are about my higher good. They just happen to be doing this internally. And that's when we start sabotaging ourselves. And then it's really hard because we beat ourselves up because it's like, I know exactly what to do. All I had to do was blah, 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 blah. And I'm not doing that thing. And then we now have the disappointment of not what's going on. And then the extra crudgel of beating ourselves up for not taking the action that we want, which then gives us proof. Well, it's really dumb for me to have dreams because when I have dreams, I don't take actions. I let myself down and it's just going to be a big mess. And so it gets, again, it gets smaller and smaller and smaller because we're getting these micro doses of proof that trying to live authentically is a dangerous thing for us to do. With the time that we have left, do you think you can yeah. give us a short demonstration of tapping? Absolutely. Um, so the, the thing is, so with, with, with tapping, like there's over 250 points on the body that acupuncturists use. Callahan chose the points that he chose because they were the end or near the end of these meridian channels that were inside of the body. So those are the points that we typically tap on. Um, if you're going back to this at a later date, if you just search tapping chart, there's going to be 87 million images that are going to show up. that are going to show you the points on the body. Um, but I'll just explain them very, very quickly. The ones that I typically use. Um, the first one is on the side of the hand. Um, it's the meaty part of the side of the hand. Um, when we are tapping, the points we're going for are about nine millimeters wide. So it's hard to miss them. I typically tap with two fingers. It's hard for there to be something wrong. Like I can't tap in a wrong way unless I'm sticking my finger into an open wound or I'm poking out my own eye. So like it is a gross movement as in it does not need to be precise as we're doing it. So the tapping points we use, side of the hand. Um, the second point is the eyebrow point. It is the far down on the eyebrow as we can get without falling down the bridge of our nose. Like you and I are wearing glasses. So they become this perfect little guide to say, hey, right there on the edge of the glasses. Um, the next spot is side of the eye. It's as far forward as we can get just on the red ridge of the eye. If your vision is blurring, you're tapping in the wrong spot. We're not hitting the eyeball, just the edge of the skull there. And the next one is under the eye. Um, it's directly below the pupil and the cheekbone. That point has a tendency, at least for me, to be a little bit sensitive because we have sinus cavity under there. And certainly last month when I was dealing with my seasonal allergies and hay fever, it was particularly tender. If it hurts, don't do it. If you just want to touch and rub in a little circle, that is just as effective. If a point is too tender, skip it. It's okay. Um, the next point is under the nose. And so it's basically halfway between the septum and the lips. You're just right there. The chin point, it's called the chin point. It's not actually the point of the chin, but if I had my ridiculous, grungy, late 90s flavor saver, I'd be tapping on the spot where that little bitty ridiculous piece of hair is. So right there in that space. The collarbone point is a hard one to find. The easiest way to do it is I just like to make an L with my thumb and index finger. Thumb and index finger then lay on each collarbone. And so with a flat hand, I'm just tapping my entire chest and I'm going to get the point. I'm actually getting lots of points. And then the last point is under the arm. It's the middle of your side of your blind. If you're wearing a bra, it's bra strapped high. And in there, it is um, a little bit tender. 
And again, as we tap on it. So that's like the shortest version of the tapping procedure. Um, the easiest way to demonstrate it is um, as you're listening along, just take a nice big deep breath, as big of a deep breath as you can take. And as you do that in your mind, I want you to rate how deep that breath was. Zero to 10, zero completely shallow breathing, 10, the deepest, most natural breath you have ever felt in your life. And so for you, as you tune into that, what does it feel like zero to 10? How big is it? Maybe about a seven. Okay, great. Okay, so what I want you to do is just tap on the side of the hand. And as you tap on the side of the hand, I just want you to tune into your lungs and the sense of free flowing air. And then just move up to the eyebrow point. And again, just feel a little relaxation in the lungs. Side of the eye. And again, just tune into the lungs. Tune into the body. Notice any tension that is there. Under the eye. Again, just right there in the cheekbone, directly below your pupil. And just breathe easy and just notice your lungs. Notice the shape of them. Under the nose. And as you tap on the chin, just scan your body and notice if there's any tension anywhere. And just notice it. Don't rate it. Just pay attention to it. Collarbone, bring your attention back to your lungs. Under the arm one more time. Just kind of trace your lungs with your mind's eye. Okay, now what I want you to do is take another nice big deep breath. And if it was a seven in the size of the deep breath before, what does it feel like now? At least a nine. Yeah. So, and that's, and that's a super small thing. Mm -hmm. And it is possible that just because we were paying attention to our lungs and that was enough to create some relief. I'm completely open to that as a possibility. Like this is far from a clear double blind test where we're doing that sort of stuff. But I love using that as just an easy way to kind of give people an entryway to show what is going on. Um, we could do the exact same procedure like with tension or something like that, that just like, you know, pay attention to where, where you tension your body. Oftentimes it's people on their shoulders. We do the exact same thing. You know, we just kind of tap from point to point with your mind's eye, just pay attention to the tension, Trace it with the shape of it with your mind and the body will just relax and relax and will relax. I can remember years and years ago when I was in my super, super zealous phase of sharing this with everybody in the world, um, I was in a coffee shop in Costa Rica, just reading and some other Americans came in and I was just asking what they had done, what was in the area. And they'd gone ziplining that morning, which was part of the big deal in that area. And I'm like, oh, how did it go? I'm like, oh, it's really great. But, you know, I got this little twingy thing in my back. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I have the most amazing thing ever. Let me teach you this thing. And I'm like, great, zero to 10, how big is the tension? We do a couple of rounds of tapping. And afterwards, I'm like, great, how big is the tension? And he goes, it's a four. And in my mind, I'm going, crap, this didn't work. And his friends go, whoa, because in 90 seconds, doing a simple exercise with a stranger in a coffee shop, 33% of his pain had gone away. Like, that's a major victory. Now, like when I cut myself, I don't start tapping. I go to the emergency room and get stitches. Like, like this is something that is a wonderful complement to the other things that we have access to. But like, that's the way I enter in. It's like, great. What can I do just to feel a little bit better? And that's a way of demonstrating it with just simple as being able to breathe a little deeper.
What's the one thing that we should understand from the healing and transformational process that helps us move forward? So it's what we talked about a little bit earlier, and and it's this idea of moving away from this all or nothing proposition when it comes to healing and transformation. Um, It's great that we want things to be perfect. It's great that we want things to go away. But if I'm in a situation where 95% of the pain goes away and my goal was to be pain-free, it's really easy for me to walk away from that feeling like I failed. When, if 95% of the pain goes away, I might return to life in such a way that that pain goes to the background and I don't even notice it. And so for me, the thing that's really important to recognize is the goal of whatever we're doing is just a little bit better. And after I get a little bit better, to just do a little bit better. It's not about right. It's not about perfect. It's how can I transform how I feel, my resource state, the amount of energy I have, the action I'm taking, the way I'm moving forward in my business in a better way. Because I think we we consistently overestimate what we can accomplish in an hour. We consistently underestimate what we can accomplish in a month. And by stretching the timeline out a little bit and making each step just the next better step, you know, it's the dumb cliche, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? I think transformation is the exact same thing. Like it just like my, the quality of my life can improve dramatically with incremental change. And when the quality of my life improves with incremental change, I'm now, now more well-resourced for the next incremental change. And then my life is better. And I'm now well more resourced for the next incremental change. And so to just be easy with ourselves, be gentle with the process. Um, in 2000, at the beginning of each year, I choose a word to kind of focus my work. And in 2020, it was just be gentle with myself. And when I'm gentle with myself, it makes it easier for me to be curious and to take things in an incremental way. And so if we're able to do that in the transformational process, to be curious to be gentle with ourselves and just figure out what the next step is very, very, very quickly. We are so far down the path that we don't realize how quickly we've gone because we're just worried about the next step that is in front of us. I like that. And I feel that we can apply that to multiple things over our lives, just not healing and transformation, but just- Yes. Yes. Dispositionally, it's just the way I I found when I hold that disposition, what's the way that I do the thing better? The, The next thing, how do I do that a little? How do I show up in my relationships just a little better? How do I hold myself accountable just a little better? How do I- do my morning stretching routine just a little better. Like, and if that's, if, I, if I'm constantly in that case, the other thing that does is it builds a, re, a more resilient baseline. You know, that when, when I am well-resourced, when I'm grounded, when I'm energized, when I'm in the moment, when something really bad happens, it still impacts me but it impacts me way less than the people around me. Like I have all sorts of structures and plans and systems in my business, not for my business to run perfectly, but when things go really wrong, they impact me less than everybody else around me. And the way I've gotten there is again, just small incremental. How do I do this thing just a little better because it makes the moment better, but it also creates an internal resilience so that when something goes wrong, it still knocks me down just as much as everybody else. But if I'm starting at a much higher place, like I go from, happy to satisfied, which is different than going from frustrated to anger. Even though I'm falling the same amount in that emotional scale, because of where my baseline is, it impacts me in the moment less, even though 
it's causing the same amount of change. I'm going to switch gears here with you. You have the website tappingqna.com and you also have a YouTube channel. Which mm-hmm. one is the best place for people to go to to find out more about tapping? Best place to go is actually the website um, because the the YouTube channel is a little sprawling. Um, there's just lots and lots of resources where if you go to tappingqna.com and you click on learn tapping, there is a concise 11-minute video that says, this is the introduction, this is how you do it. And then underneath it, I have a bunch of articles that are tapping 101, tapping 102, tapping 103 to kind of like walk you through how to step into it. You know, it's you know, it's kind of like, you know, the difference between going to a specialty store or walking into a Walmart and trying to find the food that you're going to need. Like you can find everything you want in the big box store. It's just going to be really hard to do it. Where if you go to the place where you're getting exactly your need met, it's much easier. So the website and the learn tab is the way to do that. You've got the website, you've got your YouTube channel, you're teaching, you are practicing. Do you have anything else going on that you want us to know about? So I've been like, as an actual audio podcast, I've been podcasting for 13 years. I think there's 520 episodes in the feed. Um, so it's just tappingpodcast.com or at tappingqna.com. Click on the podcast tab. Uh, about half of them are conversations exactly like this, where I'm talking with some of the best change work professionals in the world about their expertise and how we apply stuff about 20, 25% is me giving instruction and about 25% of it's just things that if you have an issue and you know where the tapping points are, you hit play and I will just guide you through that. A lot of the videos are that the exact same way. Um, but one of the nice things for me that I love about audio versus video is you can take it anywhere. And so you don't have to be tied to a screen and you can download a couple of podcasts and go sit in the park somewhere and do a little bit of work and do it in a way that's comfortable. So that's the other place that I think is pretty valuable. All right. And so besides your website, you can find those like on Spotify, iTunes, and everywhere you find audio. If you search tapping Q and a, you will find me. Great. All right, Gene. Well, before we finish up, can you give us one last positive message? Better is possible. Like no matter what is going on and where you are, better is possible. And oftentimes just being able to connect to a sense of The emotions we are experiencing are just a natural part of the human experience. And the goal is not to escape our emotions, but to get them into a proportionate, well-informed way. And if we constantly interact with our emotions with that in mind, that better is not necessarily feeling better, but better is moving to a place that is proportionate and well-informed. And if that's our goal, then it becomes significantly more manageable because I'm just going, okay, what's the, what is the first action I can take right now, which is going to set me up in a resource weight wise. So the next moment's a little bit easier for me to manage. So I can see that risk just so I can make better choices. So I can navigate that in that particular way. Gene, thank you for that message, and thank you so much for being my guest. I really appreciate you, and I wish you the best. Thanks. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for your time today. All right. Have a good one. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara Podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the Join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.